Let's get going. And I, I have a, a bad habit of uh, spending today as I sort of get ready for the class uh, with a little bit of my attention, maybe more than a little bit of my attention directed towards Twitter. Um, I justify that because I end up posting some Illich quotes as I'm preparing. Uh, but today was an especially interesting day to be uh, getting ready for this particular book to say something hopefully meaningfully about this particular book and, um, and to also sort of be following the conversation, um, or at least one strand of the conversation that's unfolding on, on social media insofar as it revolves around, uh, things like immunity passports, uh, for those with COVID vaccines. Um, and, and, and that may not make immediate, immediately any sense right now, but I wanted to, um, I, I grabbed a couple of screenshots. Uh, today, actually, one was from today, one was earlier, and I'll I'll show them to you here, and and I'll read them, hoping that by the time we get to the end of our discussion today, uh, you'll see why these really nicely sort of illustrate some of the dynamics that Illich um, explores in this book that is essentially a, a conversation with David Cayley or, or a kind of transcript that he gives to David Cayley. And, uh, and after I read these, then I'll, I'll kind of describe the origins of the book and, and then I'll try to, um, do my best to explain the central thesis of the book. So here, here are a couple of these items. Um, and I maybe should have taken a moment to kind of block out the name or whatever, but I don't think she would care. Um, and, and, and this tweet says, I think that what I learned from pandemic Twitter is that most progressives cannot look upon the other and love them without trying to control them. And I don't know that that necessarily needs to be limited to progressives, um, but this is the observation that this um, particular scholar makes. Uh, and, and she says it's kind of troubling. Um, again, the idea that, that, that it's difficult to love without trying to control. Uh, I, I'm going to suggest this is as, as neat and a... a, a um, uh, a summary of what may be Illich's central concern in this book, although he puts it much more darkly and, and, and will say more than just kind of troubling. Um, another example, uh, if I may here, let me see if I can uh, switch the, um, the sharing to a new screen. Um, at this point, I'm still no more adept at, uh, at this than I was 10, eight weeks ago. All right, so here's the other one. This is from an article, um, and it, it appeared, I forget the publication in which it appeared. And so this gentleman who, well, he writes here, my research in bioethics focuses on questions like how to induce those who are non-cooperative to get on board with doing what's best for the public good. To me, it seems the problem of coronavirus defectors could be solved by moral enhancement, like receiving a vaccine to beef up your immune system. People could take a substance to boost their cooperative pro-social behavior. Could a psychoactive pill be the solution to the pandemic? Um, and I, I assure you, this was not published in any kind of fringe publication. Um, I think it was published in The Conversation, which is sort of a academic um clearinghouse it's a, it's a british website um but it publishes a lot of academics um in any case um 
in, in, and I should say too that that I'm you know I'm, I'm pro vaccine and uh, I, I'm not a COVID skeptic at all. So you know I've been very happily wearing my mask since since last March. Uh, I've always kind of thought of the mask as a very convivial tool that can be very helpful and, and whatever. Anyway, all of that said, these sentiments um, I think nonetheless strike an interesting chord, and they both suggest sort of this idea of um, of controlling people for their own good uh, or coercing people for their own good. Um, and, and, the, and one sort of observes this and, and, and says, well, you know, this seems like a problem, right? Rightfully. And the other one is sort of proposing this, you know, just very casually. Um, and, and so bear these in mind then as we move forward. And again, I, I do think that um, with regards to, to what is sometimes called the bio biopolitics, the biopolitics of the moment, uh, Ivana Illich is very, clarifying can be very clarifying so this particular book rivers north of the future the rivers north of the future which i'll probably just refer to as rivers north for for the sake of brevity um is is not a book that Illich wrote it's a, it's a book that he spoke in some respects uh, its origins are in a prior conversation uh that david cayley had with Illich, and, and i think i've mentioned it before but cayley was um a broadcaster with the canadian broadcasting company and he was the I think he produced and hosted uh, a show called Ideas. And so he had the this pleasure, I would presume, and I think he would agree, of um, interviewing all sorts of people through the 80s and early 90s, um, intellectuals, philosophers, artists, et cetera, of interest. And and he had been um, a student of Illich's, someone who had, who had been very moved by Illich's work, going back all the way to the uh, late 60s. And so in, it was in the late 80s that he finally uh, got the opportunity to speak with Illich and, and arrange for an interview with him to have him as the subject of one of his programs. At the end of that interview, which is also published, uh, I don't think I have it at arm's length here, but it's um, um, Ivan Illich in Conversation. You can kind of buy the book that it's a tr- that, that's a transcript of. Um, but at the end of that conversation, Illich kind of uh, almost offhand-like uh, mentions that he, ha- he has this theory that the best way to understand modernity is, is by way of an old Latin adage. Um, and I, I, I don't know Latin very well, so I won't pretend to sort of just drop the Latin on you. But the, idea, the, the translation, the sense of it is uh, the corruption of the, the best is the worst. Um, the corruption of the best is the worst. And, and that the, all of Western history, Illich tells Cayley right at the end of this interview, all of Western history can be understood in light of this adage. Um, and, and so as Cayley sort of talks about this later and, re, you know, recalls this, he says that it, it kind of struck him. It was like this bombshell that Illich just dropped, very provocative, kind of mysterious. Um, and, and Cayley thought to himself, well, I, I don't have the, we'd already, he had already been sitting with Illich for eight days of interviews. Um, and so he, he felt he didn't have the time to develop this. So in the ensuing years, he, he keeps sort of prodding Illich to, to write this up, to publish to develop and publish this idea, this theory, this thesis uh, with regards to the origins of modernity. Um, and for a variety of reasons, uh, ill health having something to do with it, that, that never quite happens. And so, uh, Kaylee, uh, you know, this is my reading of it. Kaylee sort of thinking time may be running out, decides to expedite the process by offering to simply record Illich talking about this theory and then, you know, turn that into another, um, CBC production, which, which he did. And so he traveled to Mexico, I think, where uh, Illich was staying at the time, uh, recorded the conversation that is transcribed as this book, 
uh, after a couple of years, went back and had some follow-up interviews with Illich. That is the second half of the book. Um, and then the, the radio series gets published, uh, or television. I think it was, I think it might have been radio, um, gets published. And, and there was a, a, a deep hesitancy, it seems, uh, to turn this into a book. There was a kind of hesitancy on Illich's part to even sort of express these ideas publicly. And in fact, there were, as Kaylee tells it, some very close uh, friends of Illich's. Um, and in particular, he highlights a, uh, a Catholic nun who felt that publishing this, that the time was not right to publish this or for Illich to express these ideas because the church had already been roiled by uh, the sex abuse scandals of the late 90s and, and early 2000s. This is this is published as a book finally in 2005. The, um, I believe that the uh, the radio broadcast happens earlier in 2001 or two. Um, in any case, there were many who counseled Illich against this because essentially when, when he says the corruption of the best is the worst, the best in his view is the church. And so his theory of modernity is essentially that the modern world can be explained uh, not as a rejection of Christianity, uh, nor as the fulfillment of Christianity, but rather very distinctly as an inversion or corruption or perversion of Christianity. Um, and so some felt that this was a kind of inflammatory argument to be making, and they counseled them against it. And so this is actually was published after Illich's death. Um, Cayley had been in the process of um, kind of preparing the manuscript. Uh, he was set to kind of have another meeting with Illich to go over the manuscript. Um, but then Illich died in 2002, and this was not published until um, two or three years later. Uh, and and with the um, with the encouragement of Charles Taylor, and if, if you don't know the name Charles Taylor, I, I would commend his work to you. He's a Canadian philosopher, um, Roman Catholic himself. Uh, his his um, latest sort of magnum opus is a big fat book called A Secular Age, uh, and it's it is it's a tremendous account of. Uh, of the modern world and the conditions of belief. And so I commend his work to you. And, um, and he was taken, he listens to this conversation on air and calls Kaylee. Uh, Taylor had previously been a, a subject of one of Taylor's shows, calls Kaylee and says, you know, I'm, I'm working on this book. He was working on a secular age at the time. Uh, and, um, and he found in Illich somebody saying something very much like what he was trying to say. And so if you, if you do buy uh, Rivers North of the Future or pick it up somewhere, you'll notice that the foreword is by Charles Taylor. And Taylor called Kaylee up and said, this is wonderful stuff. You've got to get it into, into print. And so he sort of shepherded the, um, the, the publishing of the book and, and did a lot to give it um, attention when it came out. In any case, um, it's because it is not a finished product in the sense that as an author, Illich sat down, wrote the manuscript, edited it, revised it, and, and prepared it for publication in the ordinary sense. Um, I think that there, it does have this feel of sort of shooting off a lot of interesting tidbits. It's an art, you know, there's a kind of argument that's developing, but it's still, um, you know, as I read it sort of requires a little bit of stitching together that would happen if it, if it were a kind of finished manuscript. But nonetheless, what's there is, uh, is remarkably insightful and, um, and offers, you know, um, some really interesting perspectives on the world in which we live and particularly as as it relates to the history of christianity and as taylor says in the introduction there's a kind of history a scholarly history of, of thinking about the relationship between the modern world on the one hand and christianity on the other 
and, and you can almost draw a little quadrant, right, uh, on, with, with two axes. The one is people who think that modernity is good and then bad, right? So modernity, good, bad is one. And then church, good, bad is another, right? And so there are these scholars who think Christianity is great and modernity is great. And they tend to, to sort of celebrate the fact that, that modernity is just the, the outworking of Christianity. You know, three cheers for capitalism, three cheers for individualism, three cheers for democracy. And, and we, we find the roots of all of those things in Christianity. Uh, and then you can kind of go around that little quadrant. Um, and, you know, you, you'll find those who think that, you know, modernity is a bad thing and, and Christianity is a bad thing. They may blame in the same way that, you know, on the other side, you, you take credit. Christianity is given credit for modernity. You blame uh, Christianity for modernity. And then the reverse of those is that, uh, you know, you sort of think, well, Christianity is great and modernity is a complete rejection of it uh, and vice versa. What Taylor observes um, is that Illich kind of brings that into a, a, an entirely new light, right? So he kind of breaks out of that paradigm and and suggests neither that um, you know, modernity is, is, is good or bad or Christianity is good or bad, but that the relationship between the two of them is one of, of corruption, right? So you have these ideals that are, um, that are, that are rooted in the incarnation of Christ. And as they evolve historically, in the way that they evolve historically, lead to the kind of society that he spent Illich the majority of, the, of his you know, professional career critiquing. So, um, that's the, the, the idea as simply put as possible. Here's how uh, Cayley puts it in the very first line of the introduction to Rivers North. Uh, he says, Ivan Illich believed that the puzzling and unprecedented character of modern society makes sense only when it is recognized as a mutation of Christianity. This hypothesis formed and matured throughout his career as a priest and itinerant scholar. Right, so very simply put, right, this is, you only can make sense of the modern world. You look around the world today, if you try to make sense of it, Illich would say you can only do so if you understand that what you are looking at is very specifically a corruption of Christianity. Um, and, and I, I think, I honestly think there is, there is a lot to this. And, um, and I'll try to, again, as I said, continue to unpack this. Um, here's where Illich starts. Illich starts with the incarnation. And he says, I believe that the incarnation makes possible a surprising and entirely new flowering of love and knowledge. For Christians, the biblical God can now be loved in the flesh as a consequence of the incarnation. St. John says that he has sat at table with him. It's a very um, apropos week to be reading this, right? St. John says that he has sat at table with him, that he has put his head on his shoulder, heard him, touched him, smelled him. As you can tell, villages you're playing up the the enfleshed nature of uh, of the incarnation, right? Christ in the flesh, and he has said, "This is village continuing." Uh, speaking of Saint John, and he has said that whoever sees him sees the Father, and that whoever loves another loves him in the person of that other. Right? So these are all uh, paraphrases of, of verses in the Gospel according according to John. And then he says, it says, a new dimension of love has opened. But this opening is highly ambiguous because of the way in which it explodes certain universal assumptions about the conditions under which love is possible. So, so Illich says, the incarnation is a remarkable, remarkable event. 
uh, in human history. It is, it is the touchstone of the Christian faith, of course, uh, and it centers on this idea that God is incarnated in such a way that, that you could touch him and feel him and smell him. And, however, and then that there's an extension of this, right? That not, not only, you know, do we believe that Christ is the image of the Father, that in seeing Christ, we, we see the divine reality, but also that anyone who loves another in that sees Christ in that other person, right? Think of, uh, of passages where we're told, in so much as you have given water to these or fed these or, or cared for these, uh, the lowest, uh, the lowliest among society, you have done so to me, right? When, when have I given you a cup of water is the question. Jesus says, when you have done so to the least of these, right? And, and so that this is all made possible by the incarnation, a new way of seeing the other. And then he says, this is, this is a new dimension of love. But here's the part that, you know, maybe you're re- listening to me, reading along with me and saying, yeah, this is all good. And then all of a sudden he says, this is a highly, this opening, this new dimension of love is highly ambiguous because of the way in which it explodes certain universal assumptions about the conditions under which love is possible. In other words, um, and, and here let me go ahead and slide into his discussion of the, of the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, all right? Uh, because this is critical. It's his recurring uh, example uh, of, of the kind of love that is made possible now. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, you'll, I, I'm almost tempted to ask you how you remember it, right? But what Illich says in talking about it is that most people, he says he's done this sort of study of uh, sermons on the Good Samaritan through the patristic age and, you know, throughout medieval uh, history and into the present. And that almost universally, these sermons treat the parable as if it is about how one should act towards the neighbor, right? What one should do. And, and Illich says this is actually not the case. The, what, it, what, what the parable of the Good Samaritan is answering, the question it is, it is answering is not how should I treat my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? And, and this is a critical distinction uh, that, that and, and of course, this is precisely the case. Uh, and, and it's a critical distinction for, for Illich. In fact, let me read you the, the third quote from Illich on the handout. Jesus had not been asked, how should one behave towards one's neighbor, but rather, who is my neighbor? And what he said, as I understand it, was, my neighbor is who I choose, not who I have to choose. There is no way of categorizing who my neighbor ought to be. This doctrine about the neighbor, which Jesus proposes, is utterly destructive of ordinary decency, of what had until then been understood as ethical behavior. Now, the reason that Illich says that is because he understands ethical behavior at that time being sort of limited to one's own kin or tribe or social group, right? And so... In the Greek world, yes, you offer hospitality, but you offer hospitality to, to your fellow Greek speakers. Those that are outside of that, you know, sort of large cultural grouping are not owed the same kind of hospitality that you might owe a fellow, fellow Greek speaker. Um, and likewise, in, in the case of the Samaritan, and, and you know this, right? The, the radical thing, one radical aspect of this parable is that it is a Samaritan. Illich had the habit of, uh, when he was talking to a contemporary audience about this parable, 
of, of not referring to him as the Samaritan, but as the Palestinian, um, which you may, you know, think what you will of the, of the Palestinian really conflict. But I think that that's, that was a, a, an interesting rhetorical move that sort of highlighted the kind of enmity uh, that, that lay between these two people, right? Uh, you know, for us being far removed from the conditions of, uh, you know, first century, um, Judea, that the enmity between the Samaritan and the, um, and the Jew may be a very distant abstract thing, but I think we can begin to sort of understand the enmity between the Palestinian and the, and the Israeli. And so in that way, right, Illich was trying to sort of highlight these people owed nothing to one another. Their, in fact, their cultural assumptions were such uh, that it would have been the most predictable thing in the world would have been for the Samaritan to pass them by. And that even that the two Israelites have passed by, or, or you know, uh, the two Jews have passed by, uh, the, the Levite and the priest were in some respects acting ethically, right? Guarding the, their, their ritual purity, uh, but by not touching this man, by not helping them, right? So that in other, in other words, the, the parable is a scandal to contemporary to then contemporary moral and ethical assumptions in in and in this way what Illich is suggesting is that this this new form of love that Jesus is is inaugurating is one that is not bound by existing ethical standards that is not bound by community it's not bound by tribe it's not bound by kin right and this is why he says you know, the, the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, as it is presented in this parable, is that you have the freedom to make anyone your neighbor in accords to the call of that moment, right? So it's this radical opening up of the horizons, but it is of, of the horizons of, of neighborliness, of love, of love of neighbor, right? But central to, to Illich's view here is that there is a freedom here. There is a, there's a freedom to respond to a very concrete flesh and blood human being that you might meet, uh, as this Samaritan does, uh, you know, the, the, the man in need in the ditch, right? And so just as, you know, let's say just as there's no prescription, right? You, you shouldn't heed a prescription that tells you, no, that's not the kind of person we help. Neither is there a kind of a, a rule obligating action. Rather, instead of a rule, there is a call. And it's a call that one either answers or ignores. And for Illich, that's a very different thing than a rule, a norm, a guideline, right, that that one establishes. In fact, part of what Illich is going to develop throughout this book is that the, the, the trouble with the modern world, so to speak, is that it's, it took the freedom out of that encounter. And and it took the, the 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 incarnate flesh and blood presence of that encounter out of the picture and abstracted that act of love and the neighbor and institutionalized love so one of one of uh, a recurring phrase for Illich is you know uh, uh, to kind of get at this dynamic is to talk about the way in which hospitality turned into hospitalization right the work of hospitality turns into the institution of the hospital. And so this is the, the, the trajectory that Illich tries to then lay out. You begin with the incarnation. You begin with this new expansion of love that Jesus announces and, uh, and makes possible, grounded in this freedom, this radical freedom to treat anyone 
as your neighbor, deserving of, of your love, of your um, uh, of agape. And, and how then that very volatile um, new form of love becomes institutionalized, regulated, uh, and, and managed by the church, and how then that institutionalization becomes the pattern for all other modern institutions that Illich took aim at throughout the, 20, the late 20th century. Right, so that when he is critiquing the school, when he is critiquing the hospital, when he is critiquing the transportation industry, always under this prior critique of the church as an institution, uh, which wasn't explicit in in that earlier work, it was there. Especially, I think you see it in *De School and Society*, where he talks about disestablishing the schools, uh, but then I think becomes a it remains veiled in any case to some degree, or at least not apparent to those who don't, um, you know, to borrow a phrase, have eyes to see, right? Um, but in this particular book, in, in Rivers North, he is laying out this, um, this way of looking at these institutions that was grounded in first his critique of, of the institutionalization of love in the church. Now, I, I, I want to just dwell on this for just a moment because part of what I think we, as as Christians, and I, I think as um, you know, for those of you who are here, you know, Christian Studies Center, right? So, as I sense that you, you're familiar with the story, you're familiar with, um, you know, the the idea of, of loving one's neighbor, but that we we don't quite feel the the danger of this kind of love, right? Because what it does, in a sense, and and I'm. I think I'm, you know, faithfully representing part of Village's argument here. In, in, in exploding these earlier normative communities where love and care and hospitality was bounded by the tribe, kin, et cetera, um, you, you're, you're taking those things then out of the picture in order to generate this new possibility, right? This new form of, of, of love. And if, if that love fails, then the older forms are no longer available to you, right? So there's a, a clearing away of these older forms of love in, in favor of a new, more radical form of, of love. But the danger is, is that failing, the individual, the person, no longer has the, the option of falling back into the older patterns, right? And so now that wouldn't have immediately been the case, but it, it does become the case when uh, Christendom sort of clears out the, the older existing uh, communal patterns in that, that characterize ancient classical Greco-Roman society, right? Um, and, and one way that, you know, parallel development there is, is that as part of his argument, Illich talks about how we, you know, in the, in the pagan world, nature is not the creation of a single God out of nothing, right? So in the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition, uh, creation is ex nihilo. God speaks everything into existence. Uh, nothing was there except God, then God speaks, and there is, and there is the world, right? So the world is dependent on God. Uh, God is the ground of all being. 
it, it is the the natural world is a an act of contingency is is gratuitous and it owes its existence to God. In the pagan world, as you may remember, right from your uh, various um, encounters with Greek mythology, say um, there's there's not quite that kind of relationship between a single God and the creation. And there's a even in certainly as as uh, pagan religions become sort of philosophized, um, there is a tendency to sort of see nature as eternal, as operating on its own principles, um, and in 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 those cases, then right, nature is alive. Um, it has a kind of power to it that is not that no single god kind of controls or, or manages, right? But when you when you make the move to make nature entirely dependent upon God, right? You put nature in God's hands. This is how Illich puts it. Then what you create is a possibility that when you take it out of God's hands, it now is sort of just this raw material, right? It's just. It, you, you, when you take it out of God's hands, it then can be put in man's hands, right? So there is a a logic by which you go from a uh, a kind of view of nature as being um, a, a powerful, infused with forces, um, uncontrollable, and and then you you see it then as a creation of God. And so once you then at that point take God out of the picture, then there's nature doesn't fall back into its pagan uh, relation, right? It now just simply becomes raw material for, for, for you know, sort of techno-scientific mastery. Um, and in a similar way with the, with the community, say, with the idea of community and love and hospitality, right? Once you erase the older forms of kin-based community, and elevate the kind of freedom for love that Illich says the parable of Samaritan illustrates, then you're in this precarious place where if you blow it, you, you leave people atomized and, and without recourse to a community to take its place, right? So um, that's, one, that's one danger. And then the other danger uh, upon which Illich focuses is, is what happens when you institutionalize the impulse to love. And so let me pause there for a moment because I think that that was you know, a good chunk of, um, of stuff that you may have some questions about. So any thoughts on that thus far? Anything I can clarify um, regarding Ulrich's argument up, up to that point? I really like the way you use the word atomized right there because I see that in just kind of like stepping back looking at the political structure of the u.s um we think of ourselves you could argue as as a nation of individuals and um this is an argument i've heard that that this is a, a bad move in this direction away from the communities that we used to organize around um which is an interesting argument. And that I w- was thinking about yesterday. And uh, um, it really struck me that, that you use that word there, atomized, as to the effect of um, Christianity and these other things kind of backing away. Yeah. the You know, in, in this conversation with Kaylee at one point, Illich you know, talks about this in terms of how we, we go from it in, in sort of pre-modern contexts being an I, singular pronoun I, that sees itself as 
primarily as part of a we, right? So you're, you're, you're fundamentally a part of a we and your I consists in belonging to that we. Two, on the other hand, seeing ourselves fundamentally as eyes, singular plural pronoun, who occasionally uh, have recourse to a certain we that we choose voluntarily to enter into, right? So we, it, it is, I think, a, a function of modernity. Americans are, are particularly adept at this, um, to see themselves fundamentally as individuals with rights, uh, rather than, than as persons embedded in communities who have membership in community, you know, as, as, as Wendell Berry likes to put it, um, and who have, who have rights and obligations as members of that community, right? So we're, we're prepared, um, rather, I think, to see ourselves, you know, principally as eyes. Uh, our own you know, self-determination is, is our kind of sacred prerogative. Um, and, and there is, I think there's, what, what Illich is tracing here is, is a certain genealogy in relation to that development, um, where you, you create this possibility of, of a community, right? The Christian community in, in the, in the early church, right? Where there is neither male nor female, Greek or Jew, uh, rich or poor, right? All are, are entered into this, uh, enter into this community, um, that presents a kind of radical egalitarianism by the standards of the day. Uh, all of these traditional markers of identity uh, fade away uh, in in favor of of one, right? Whether or not we are uh, in Christ, right? As as Paul puts it repeatedly throughout his epistles, um, and so you you devalue not devalue is not the right phrase, right? You 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 undermine those earlier ties that grounded your identity in these various weeds, right? In order to form this new community, um, and and so so long as you have that community, right? That's a wonderful thing. Um, but when if that community is is corrupted or perverted or, or loses its way, uh, then you don't get to have you don't recourse back to those older habitats of human identity, right? Um, now essentially you're sort of thrown you're left to your own devices in some respects. Um, now, you know, those are sweeping generalizations, right? That, you know, gloss over, you know, tremendously complicated regional histories over two millennia. Uh, but, but I think that's a sort of the idea. Um, what you get instead, you know, I think Illich would say is you, you get institutions. Um, and so we don't have a, you know, we may not have a community to care for us anymore. And the church may have outsourced the care that it was supposed to undertake, uh, but we do get the hospital, right? And you do get the social services uh, that, you know, local government may provide, or you get, et cetera, et cetera. But what you don't get is that kind of, um, of, of you know, radical encounter that the Good Samaritan um, exemplified. And for, for Illich, this was a great, you know, I think a great tragedy. And more than that, it, it was... Um, it was a, a great evil. Uh, Illich has this, uh, I think I may have, um, included it in this handout or not. Um, but one of the things that he talks about is that there's this, there's this possibility. Um, let me read this, this part here. It's the third quote. I skipped it over earlier. So along with this new ability to give freely of oneself has appeared the possibility of exercising an entirely new kind of power. 
the power of those who organize Christianity and use this vocation to claim their superiority as social institutions. This power is claimed first by the church and later by the many secular institutions stamped from its mold. Wherever I look for the roots of modernity, I find them in the attempts of the churches to institutionalize, legitimize, and manage Christian vocation. Um, and, and the Illich will speak very strongly about this as the kind of spirit of Antichrist. Um, that um, it, it was it was curious too because the uh, the QAnon congresswoman from Florida uh, said something today about you know the vaccines being the mark of the beast and um, and, and something about Antichrist anyway. And so not only, you know, you, you have these sort of earlier sentiments that I cited before a couple of you came on here, but even that was sort of in the air in the, in the discourse today. Um, but what Illich is saying here is that the mystery of iniquity that Paul speaks of uh, is this possibility that the gospel, that the corruption of the gospel becomes a great evil in human society. Um, that as, as great as the, the power of love, the, 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 the calling to glory that Illich, you know, calls it, that's, that's, you know, presented to us in, in the gospel. As great as that can be, equally evil and wicked is its perversion. And, and I think there's really something, I mean, if it, it, you know, uh, um, a, uh, how shall I put it? Uh, an, a not uh, dispensationalist account of the book of Revelation, I think, bears this out, um, where you you have throughout the book of Revelation, and admittedly sort of this coded apocalyptic genre, uh, this this idea that there is, and the, the great danger that will be let loose in the world is the danger of Antichrist. But Antichrist is not sort of this, presented to us as a sort of, um, I don't know, um, depending on the tradition you've grown up in, I'm not sure how you fill in, you know, that label, but it, it's very explicitly presented as a counterfeit of Christianity. Uh, there's a counterfeit Trinity presented to us, um, counterfeit institutions, and, and that they, they are somehow perversions of the, the truth and the love, the charity made possible by Christianity, right? So that, so in introducing the gospel, Illich would say you are also introducing the threat of its corruption and the, the greatness of the one is parallel to the potential evil of the other, right? And hence, the corruption of the best becomes the worst, and that this is what has happened in Western society. Um, and, and so wherever we have, let me read you this last uh, quote that I have here, because I think this, this is a fairly clear representation of this next idea that I was going to try to paraphrase. So he says, just as God became flesh and in the flesh relates to each one of us, so you are capable of relating in the flesh. Take away the flesh, fleshy, bodily, carnal, dense, humoral experience of the self and therefore of the thou. In other words, the, the, the I-thou relationship. I'm not sure if he's explicitly borrowing um, uh formulation that was made famous by a guy named Martin Buber. But, um, you know, if you, if you take away the fleshy, bodily, carnal, dense, humoral experience of the self, and therefore of the thou, of the other, from the story of the Samaritan, then what you have, you have a nice liberal fantasy, which is something horrible. You have the basis on which one might feel responsible for bombing the neighbor for his own good. The use of power 
is what I call the, there's the Latin phrase, corruptio optima chaos pessima, which is the corruption of the worst of the best, or corruption of the best is the worst. God's own flesh, and that's a, obviously a typo or autocorrect there, my apologies. Um, God is in the flesh, and the relation between two people, the mystery of the Samaritan, is inevitably a mystery of the flesh. This becomes very difficult to explain or even to say in our generation, during which I believe an extraordinary history of disinfleshment of our perceptions, our concepts, and our senses has reached a high point. There are two things in that, that particular passage that I wanted to highlight. One is this idea of the disinfleshment of our perception, the abstraction away and out of the body. But the other was this, this sense that, um, how he puts it here, that one uh, fallout of the corruption of the best is the worst, is that out of a sense of of, of love, perverted love, corrupted love, uh, inverted love, you might even feel a responsibility to bomb one's neighbor for, for their own good, right? Um, the idea there being is that, you know, some of you are too, I, 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 well, yeah, some of you I suspect are probably too young to remember the outbreak of um, the, uh, the war in Iraq. Um, and, and the idea that, you know, we are, exporting democracy and and that we we do this because we know that this is the good value the right thing the better way for a people right um whatever you think of democracy that impulse though is is this impulse of of an institution that thinks it knows what is best for the world and under the guise of that moral superiority is prepared to bomb them into accepting that that good thing that they have to offer all right um, and then, so that's a particularly dramatic case of this, right? But the earlier, um, you know, the earlier sentiments that I, that I highlighted, right? Uh, I, before a couple of you came on, uh, there was a, a couple of paragraphs or, or, um, well, one, one tweet, right? Where the, the, it, it read like this. I'm sorry. I was trying to find it. I think that what I learned from, pandemic Twitter is that most progressives cannot look upon the other and love them without trying to control them, right? This idea that, that the idea that, that caring for another to some degree must entail uh, coercing them, right? Or controlling them or exerting power over them or institutionalizing them. Um, that That's another manifestation uh, of of this same thing, right? You know what is best. And so, you know, darn it, you're going to make, you're going you're gonna to deliver that good to the other, whether they like it or not. And the other passage I read was a bioethicist suggesting that, um, you know, what people need is a kind of, um, uh, um, how did he put it? It's a, uh, a substance to boost their cooperative pro-social behavior, a psychoactive pill that might be the solution to those who are, uh, reticent to kind of get on board with team play in a, in a time of pandemic. Um, that, that because you know what is right, because you are enlightened, right? Now you are tempted by the, the power to make others get in line with that. I, honestly, I, I cannot read that. I, I cannot have a, you know, having, having sort of been presented with this, um, perspective by Illich, I see it everywhere. I see it everywhere, uh, from well-meaning people, um, you know, from people on either side of the political spectrum to some degree, um, and everywhere in between, right? That there's a sense that when we, we feel like we know what is good and true for, for everyone, 
it, it comes with the temptation to impose that, um, even by force, if need be. And, and what Illich would say is that this happened in the church before it happened anywhere else. And so part of the history that he traces, it focuses again around the 12th century, um, it is what he, moved, he, he, he describes as the move to criminalize sin, where the church through, in the age of reform, it's seized by this desire to sort of get Christians to sort of give up all of their um, sort of recalcitrant pagan carryovers, whatever superstitions they still had, uh, whatever local practices had sort of mixed in with, you know, sort of orthodoxy and orthopraxis, um, and and to, to get people to take seriously their, their faith um, and to live it. Right. It, it, Taylor makes a great deal of this. It's a little wonder that he, he found a, a kindred spirit in Illich where, you know, he says that in the age of reform around the 12th and, and 13th century, uh, the church is no longer content with sort of thinking in terms of these, this tripartite division of society where really the only ones who can zealously pursue a holy life are the monks. The rulers can't do that. And, and you know, the, the military and ruling class can't do that. And the, and the merchant class or the working class can't do that. Um, but that's okay because the monks will kind of do that for them. And then these all balance themselves out. And so you don't feel this need to impose perfect holiness on all members of society. That kind of laissez-faire attitude towards holiness, whatever you may think of it, kind of goes away in the 12th century. And so you get the, this impetus to legislate. What, what a phrase from sort of 80s, 90s political culture wars to legislate morality, right? If, if people won't behave on their own accord, we will pass laws that will make them do so. Um, now, again, I'm, I'm, the, the issues there are complicated and are, and are worthy of debate, but that impulse to regulate behavior, to control people, um, to, and to do so for their own good is, is the, the core insight that Illich has in this book and, and that he traces it to the church and the institutional history of the church. And in each case, what has happened is you've taken the action out of that face-to-face encounter. Right, that, that encounter where you pass by the street and you see someone in need and, and in your gut, it says in your gut, you feel called to help them. And, and the, the, the beauty of the gospel is that this new freedom says it doesn't matter if you're from the same family, clan, or cultural group. You can answer that call. The problem comes in when somebody says that you, you have to, or when they outsource that to an institution that will do that labor work for you, uh, and and then the human being, the person, the flesh to flesh encounter, is abstracted out of the equation in ways that then become profoundly dangerous. All right. So I will pause there uh, because we're 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 coming close to the end of our time. Uh, I will read you this one last quote here. Um, it's the penultimate quote in the handout. The contemporary sociological assumption is that the other's sense of himself or herself is an illusion shaped by ideology, by social condition, by upbringing, and by education. In the ellipsis there, I had taken out the phrase for brevity's sake, you know, whether it's psychoanalytic or Marxist, right? So I think uh, you know, you may find this in, if you take a sort of introduction sociology course or something of the sort, you might find the same assumption, right? That, that, um, people are a product of their social condition or their ideology or their upbringing such to such a degree 
but you can't really take them at their word, right? They don't really know what they believe uh, so much as they just replicate what their ideology, cultural, uh, family upbringing sort of teach them to, right? Now, what Illich says is that, on the contrary, only by taking the predictability out of the face of the other can I be surprised by him. And this is what I have tried to do. In other words, there is this assumption, and this is almost like if you've never even taken sociology course, right? It's almost like the default mode of social media engagement where we all seem to think what the other, we're ready to put people in their groups, in their label, you know, label them accordingly, and then not hear them, but only judge them according to that measure and deal with them accordingly. What it says is that this removes the possibility of being surprised by the other. Right. Um, and surprise is a, is a critical word for Illich. It's often uh, a kind of code word for grace, for the gospel itself, right? For the, the, the unpredictability, um, of, uh, of the, of the human encounter, right? But, but we have to take the predictability out of the face of the other, right? You, you cannot come to a person thinking you know them, right? You must be ready to listen, to see yourself reflected in them. And that can only happen in that, in that face-to-face encounter. Um, and so this was a, a kind of a side note, but I, it was a, a good insight, which I thought, you know, is worth our contemplation. Um, that's, that's, so that's not only today, that's the class. Um, and so I don't have a, a kind of neat summary uh, of everything for you to kind of put a bow on everything, but, um, but I, I, I will just sort of give the last few minutes here to any questions you may have or any comments, uh, observations, et cetera, et cetera.